we could sacrifice. Well, I'll pay for my own sins. Like, well, okay, but you won't exist when you're done. Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining us today, we've got Eric. Hi. And we've got Karen. Hey. And we have Tracy. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Well, it's been an interesting few weeks for the four of us. I think over the last five weeks, at least one of us has been traveling in some capacity. And for four of those five weeks, one of us has been recording remotely. Yeah. And I think we're all finally home and uh, back back to normal, at least as normal as that can be. So um, as we get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Karen just got back from a fun trip on the western slope of Colorado, shared some pictures with the, the other three of us. And she did some crazy things and uh, handling snakes and alligators and. Yep. And things and uh, if anybody knows any jokes about Karens and nope. alligators, no. send them to me. Come on, Eli, I have to have them. I have to have them. <laughs> There's got to be a joke out there about a Karen and an alligator, and uh, <laughs> and I want it. I want I want it. So email it to me. Attb podcast at theadventure dot org. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it looked like fun. It was just a little bitty alligator, but I was like, "There's got to be something." <laughs> well, and it's hilarious because, and he was, he was only one year old. And so he was very small. He was maybe 18 inches nose to tail. Right. And so like you hold, you hold him up and they take your picture and then they write you a certificate of bravery. This is for little kids, but they just had great fun doing this for me. So they write you a certificate of bravery and then they wiggle him around and annoy him so that he opens his mouth. And then they put the certificate of bravery into his mouth and squeeze his little needle teeth into it. And then he opens his mouth again and then they hand you the certificate of bravery and it has a perfect outline of an alligator bite. It's actually a very cute gimmick. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, and we and we learned that Tracy has a distinct love for for snakes. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. Yeah, to be clear, to be clear to those who are listening, we were not with her on the trip. Just right. even seeing the pictures of her doing things like snake handling were enough to have some of us go like, "No thanks." <laughs> so, so um, one of those snakes was af- was actually named after a town here in northern Colorado. So this place does rescues. Um, for example, their one of their one of their uh, alligators weighs about five hundred pounds, and he's a rescue from Hollywood because he got so old and bad tempered. They think he's about fifty five years old. He got so bad tempered that instead of just continuing to happily show up and be in movies, he like destroyed an entire set. So they, you know, he got donated. So he's a rescue from Hollywood. But they also have a rescue. It's a giant snake. And my daughter was the first member of the public to handle him because so far he's just bad tempered. And his name is Greeley (laughs) because he was rescued from a town named Greeley. And so, but they saw her handling the better tempered snakes, the ones that they're sure of. And she was so comfortable with them. They were like, okay, well, if one of us stands on each side of you 
and is very, very present and near the entire process, we'll let you try holding Greeley. And so they did. They bring out this monster of a man and they like drape him around her neck. And she goes, he's hugging me. And they're like, yes, well, he's a constrictor. So she's like, no, he's really hugging me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was it was very entertaining. The whole thing was just fun. And, and, you know, people, they were nearby. They didn't ever step away so that she was in danger or anything like that. <laughs> Yeah, I not not to belabor it, but I I lived with my cousin for a few years and we had a boa constrictor and uh, that was an interesting that was an interesting pet to have. So, yeah, snakes are uh, they they are they are they're a weird creature. They are mm-hmm. funky. They are funky. All right, well, let's get into our discussion today. Last week we were talking about Solomon kind of getting the uh oh, how do I want to put it? He was Kind of given given the the chore the chore the job the I don't know the honor of oh, being yeah. the one to build the temple. Uh, David wanted to do it, but God basically said, "No, your reputation is for a whole different kind of job, and so I'm going to give the job to your son Solomon." And so that's where we start this week. We're with Solomon is is king. And he is getting ready to build the temple, and he's just kind of starting out his reign. And First Kings chapter three begins with Solomon doing something. I don't know. It's sort of an I don't know. I'm going to say irony. It's probably the wrong word to use, but it's sort of an irony that his first request from God, when God comes to him, and says, "What do you want me to do?" Solomon says, "Give me wisdom." Now I say irony, not because that's a weird thing to ask for, but to me it's it shows wisdom be, to begin with to want wisdom over things like riches and uh, success over your enemies and all that sort of thing. And God seems impressed with that request, but um, you know, just from the from the very beginning, you know, the idea of God coming to you and say, "Hey, what would you like me to give you?" Wouldn't that be kind of a nice? Wouldn't that be a, kind of a nice thing to happen? Would God just show up and say, hey, what would you like? <laughs> and, and the sky is the limit. You know, I think that happens more than we realize. If we look at Jesus' interaction with those around him, if you really look for the phrase, what do you want me to do for you? Or what do you want? It shows up fairly regularly. I do believe that God wants to give us what is good for us. The problem is what we want and what is good for us are not always the same thing. And if we ask him to give us what is good for us, I believe we get that. Now, sometimes that comes through some some difficulties. Karen's a musician, and I know there are some songs that, that we've sung like the, the uh, oh, I can't think of it, like the, the uh, Through a Thorny Way lays uh, to, um, to a brighter I I can't remember exactly the words to the hymn, but basically we have to go through junk sometimes to get to the good things. And Solomon cuts straight to something that is, in fact, honorable and something that is, in fact, uh, within God's will, because he's asking for wisdom to govern. It's not just he wants to be smart. He wants to be a really good ruler, and he understands he doesn't have it in himself, and that humility, 
works well. I mean, not, not works well like a manipulative thing, but that's what he needed. And he asked for God and God said, yeah, you do need this and I'll give it to you. Yeah. I liked how he worded it. He said, you know, first of all, he said, well, like who can, you know, give me discernment and wisdom so that I can be a good leader because who can lead this great people of yours? Right. And then he says, you know, I'm a child. I don't have the skills that I need to do justice to your people. So give me those skills. Mm-hmm. And I, I, th- I, I thought that was great. It reminded me of the passage in uh, James, where in the book of James, where it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives to gives everything freely and you'll receive it. I think it was funny, though, it started out right away that we start with the wife counting. And I don't know if to this point we've seen if, did he already have a wife? Does anybody remember seeing that before? Or is that number one with Egypt, which we know was not always the best, uh, didn't have the best qualities, were more worldly at this point. So he makes a pact with them already and has a foreign wife that we... We've known from previous studies that had many gods, didn't follow, didn't follow the Lord. So already there, we kind of, I was just thinking about it and it's like, you know, he, he didn't have such a formidable bridge right there, more ties to the world at this point. And I don't know if that's starting out on such a good foot. Yeah, I kind of had a note about that too, thinking maybe this is the beginnings of trouble because we do know eventually that this kind of leads to his his downfall as a king. I mean, he starts and, out good. And yet as a king, it's an alliance. Right. right? And, and that's a common way to negotiate peace. It's like, well, of course I'm not going to attack you. I'm married to your daughter and I'm mm-hmm. keeping her happy. She's a happy, thriving spouse. And you can be, you can rest assured that she's safe with me and she can rest assured that I'm not going to attack her homeland, right? And everybody gets along because there's this alliance in place. So at the same time on maybe like a spouse or an emotional level or a marital commitment level, it's not great. It's so common. It's so Mm -hmm. common among royalty. You know, but I, I was thinking too, and I was trying to go back and I don't know if anybody remembers this too, but... Wasn't there something that the Lord said too? He really didn't want them to have those kind of alliances. Yes, it was yeah. supposed to be solely on Him. Yes, and there's there's and that is a general principle. Um, yes, we've seen that before, and in the future we see that it's very, very, very specifically. Don't do this, and so I guess we see Solomon doing this, and this is he's very much like us in the way that he does something that's just. It's just kind of not so wise. He he builds this alliance that he shouldn't have. He begins collecting wives, and that leads to problems. But he also does some some really good things. You know, he asks for wisdom to be a good um, a good ruler. And I guess sometimes we 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 look at folks in the Bible and we think they're either all good or all bad. You know, as if as if anybody is actually all good. Or all bad, right? Well, and some other stuff ha- happens here. We're in the in this beginning of Solomon's reign. He has also decided he's going to go to uh, make some offerings to God in his in the beginning, and he goes to says the great high place at Gibeon. Gibeon is outside of Jerusalem. I think 
it looked like to be eight or ten miles maybe away from on the map. So it's outside of there. This is where the tabernacle was, but yet the ark is in Jerusalem. So that this has got me kind of perplexed too, because we remember that David brought the ark back. Just it sort of baffles me why they didn't put it back in the tabernacle. But that's the way it is. And but he goes he goes to the he goes to the tabernacle. He makes a thousand burnt offerings. I that seems <laughs> that sounds sort of extreme to me to make a thousand offerings, but it's not the first time we've heard that kind of thing before. In verse three, it says it, it actually reminded me of the shades of gray, shall we say, that that prelude a bunch of the other kings that have you know, the rulers where it says Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father, David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. So mm-hmm. when you guys are talking about compromising on the front of marriage. And then here's another one. It's like, yeah, he loved God and he followed God, except. Yeah. And, you know, that sort of had me confused at first also. Um, but when you read the go to Chronicles on that, you find that this high place is where the tabernacle was. So it's like this. It was like this strange dichotomy of stuff going on where they had put this tabernacle in one of the high places, which we generally think of the high places as being the I don't know, use the word the pagan worship areas. Yeah, I don't know. There was just some strange stuff going on here that that hasn't been spelled out to us. And um yeah, just kind of weird. It's just kind of weird what's what's happening at this point. Well, they didn't really have a whole system down, and and uh, this transition between David and Solomon. Solomon seems to be working to make this a bit more of a a system. You know, he's going to say, okay, like who's in charge of the gates? Who are the musicians? Who's going to be ministering the sanctuary? Who's going to be? They're they're kind of building a system at this point that is a has apparently been missing because what he's doing is he's he's nationalizing, he's centralizing a lot of this power, whereas before under the prophets and the judges, this was to be very diffused through the entire nation. Right. And you know, so, I, yeah. And I look at it too as is um we're back to what what was his calling and what was his job where I think like we had said before in previous, David was to go out and and conquer the lands and and set up the space and you know um, be the warring kind of king. Where Solomon's job was to now, with everything that was given to him in the lands and everything else, was like Eric said to to centralize everything and and make a system and laws and governing parts to it. Where before the country hadn't seen that they were. Okay, guys, let's round them up. Let's go to war. We have to defend against the Philistines and that kind of thing. Where now he's able to bring things home in a peaceful time that David did not see, and um, try to get things worked out and get some kind of order to them. Well, he was this. This was also the place of the altar. The original altar says it was. Uh, well, it was the original one made by Bezalel. So this is at the tabernacle. So this seems like maybe this is why he went to that particular place, because this is where the altar was. And I wonder, too, if something is happening here where there's been, well, by having the ark gone, maybe there's been too much 
I'm going to say too much. There's been a lot of focus put on the sacrifice part of things and less on the presence of God. Because remember that the ark is where the presence of God was. This is where God like would literally come and be with the people. But it seems like maybe by going to the altar instead, may, maybe this is kind of showing where some of the uh, emphasis had been placed on things. Well, God, God, God blesses him because he goes there sure. to do this, and then he appears in a dream to him, which is apparently a, a real dream, which is, I guess, I don't really know how to say that because I don't really know what it is, because it's not in Solomon's imagination, though he doesn't seem to know that, mm-hmm. um, that he has this conversation with God, which I find, quite frankly, uh, very fascinating that God can communicate to us in our subconscious in a real-time conversational way that is a dimension that I don't understand. I don't know how that happens. Yeah. But but Jesus runs into this too. He he knows what the scribes and Pharisees are thinking. I mean, we see that phrase pop up here and there. And so God really can, he knows what's going on deep in our thoughts. Jesus addresses this in, in the, in Matthew five and six, he says, you know, I've, I've told you don't commit adultery. Well, I mean, if you're there, you can see that happening, right? You, you know, what's happening. But then he says, I don't even want you to go there in your mind. And although I can't see what's going on in Matt, Tracy or Karen's mind, God can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so somehow God has this conversation with Solomon in his sleep, and he has this vision, and he asks for wisdom. And God says, because you have asked for wisdom and an understanding mind in order to govern, I will give you this wisdom, and not just some wisdom. I will give you, you will be the wisest person who has ever lived. Nobody before you or after you. And not only that, but I will give you peace from your enemies, and I will give you riches. And as Solomon's life unfolds, at least the beginning part of his life, um, it's it's just unparalleled. And I find it really interesting. This is moving ahead to First Kings 4 just a little bit, but just one of the things where he's very, very wise and he writes and talks about is biology, is biology and music and proverbs. So he's got this really wide diversity of, of wisdom and and people come to seek God, they're like, wow, what makes you so smart? Like, what's going on? Can you explain this? And he gives credit to God. And he says, well, yeah, let me explain this to you. And it's just, it's really, really, really amazing how this unfolds. And God gives this to him. And God gives him a promise. Here's the, in, in uh, 1 Kings three fourteen. he also gives him another promise. He says, I'll give you discerning mind and all these other things, riches and honor. And this is 14, if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked in them, I will lengthen your days. You know, it's kind of like you get a, you get a bonus warranty here if you do these things. Mm. Right. Yeah, bonus warranty. He didn't have to have a constant phone call. He didn't get the phone calls four kidding. times a day. <laughs> So he gets this, and what's interesting is probably what pops up, the most famous story of Solomon's wisdom. Yeah, it goes on. It's, it is. It's, he gets the wisdom, and now we get a demonstration of this wisdom, and it's 
it's really an interesting it's an interesting story it's a very interesting story it's a famous story people have probably heard it even if you haven't read the bible at some point you've probably heard some version of this at some point these two women uh prostitutes they come to solomon and what has happened they've both had children newborn babies and one of them died in the night, apparently, at least according to the story that, that one of the women is telling, is that one of the babies died in the night because the mother rolled over on top of it and, I'm assuming, smothered it. I just thought it was weird to call a baby an it. But I don't know if it's a boy or a girl here. So, anyway, I digress. Sorry. But uh, one, of the, one of the babies dies. And so then the other one, or the one whose, babies di- who, whose baby died sneaks over and takes the other woman's baby in the middle of the night, swaps them out, and claims the live baby as her own, leaves the dead baby in the other woman's arms, and tries to pass this off as if the other woman's baby has died. I'm really complicating this story, but it's a, it's a weird story. Um, so then they, the woman wakes up, finds this baby dead, looks at the baby, this isn't my baby, uh, finds her baby in the other woman's with the other woman, and so there's this dispute over who has the live child. So they go to Solomon and they tell the story. Now, you know, if you, when you're reading the story, there's really no way to tell who is actually telling the truth in this story. It could be it could go either way. Mm-hmm. The woman, you know, either way, it's either either um, either somebody did steal the baby or someone didn't steal the baby. But the, but we don't really know. But David's solution is bring me oh, a sword, Solomon. Solomon. Here I go, guys. <laughs> Solomon's solution is bring me a sword. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I mean, if this is my kid on the line, and 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 and, and the and the king's solution is instantly bring me a sword, you got to be wondering what's going on. And then he suggests exactly what you think is going to be. Let's cut the baby in half. And each of you takes the baby. And one of the women women immediately goes, hey, that's a great idea. And the other woman says, no, let the other woman have the baby. And, and Solomon awards the baby to the woman who wants to preserve the baby's life. So, you know, even, even at the end of that story, I don't know for sure which mother is the biological mother. But... Solomon makes a wise decision in in granting custody to the woman who wants to keep the baby alive, and that's it's really a fascinating story when you get down into the into the uh, just the little nuances of it. Because I've read the story several times, and I always thought I always thought that the woman who wanted the baby to stay alive obviously has to be the baby's biological mother. But I've grown enough cynicism in my life from the world we live in to think that, you know what, that may not be the case. It's very possible that that wasn't the case and that, that, uh, you know, the, 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 the biological mother could be the one who, who just sort of wanted the, uh, the prestige of having the baby or, you know, well, it's just a contrast there. See, one of the things yeah. that helped us out here is we don't have the perspective of just what one mother said. We have uh-huh. them both. And mm-hmm. they're laid out pretty clearly. One says, fine, divide them. I'll take half, you take half. And the other says, no, I, I want the child to live. And we're making assumptions here that, that, there's, that there isn't a, some kind of psychological like, disease going on with, with both 
both of them. Mm-hmm. One is just selfish and says, well, if I couldn't have my son, you don't get yours either. And the other says, you know what? I love my son so much. I'd rather you have the son. Now, right. in retrospect, we can look at that and say, oh, yeah, I can see how you could do that. That's pretty smart. But that's like watching somebody solve one of those impossible puzzles. And we see it done and we're like, oh, I could have done that. We're like, yeah, but you didn't. You know what you watched it get done. Right. And this is this is at the beginning of his reign. And there's an interesting um, line here at the end. Uh, and all Israel heard of the judgment the king rendered. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. And I would imagine that this kind of, this is an oral tradition, uh, community and society. And they talked about this. They're like, oh, this king? He's not just a kid. This guy knows what's going on, which I've been to boarding schools and I've been, let's just say, skirted the law of some of these things. And you find out who, who knows what's going on and who's clueless, right? And you know where to do your shenanigans. Mm-hmm. And when Solomon shows up to be this wise, I'm sure everybody's like, oh, okay, this guy is no fool. This, this, this is going to run on the straight and narrow here. That this has a ripple effect through his kingdom for good. Yeah. Well, chapter four, first Kings chapter four gives us some rundown of Solomon's administration, uh, his cabinet, if you want to call it that. Uh, lots of lots of names listed there. If you wanted to, I don't know. Did you guys glean anything out of there that was really of drastic importance? I kind like I just kind of skimmed through it, and I see a lot of names that do different jobs. I saw Ben Hur. Uh, that's what I was just gonna yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Ben Hur. Yeah, I was great like, finds. <laughs> yeah, there's a I lot of Bens though. There's Ben Geber, Ben Decker, Ben Hur, but Ben Hur is the only one that got a movie. So. <laughs> yeah, well, is it that Ben Hur? It's probably not. Uh yeah, no, we're separated by. I would say that's a quite a quite a separation. And Ben, I believe Ben just means son of, doesn't it? Something like that. I think that's what it means. I wish I knew because it's probably an answer I should know, but it, <laughs> it is common. Yeah. It I is think common I preface. Yeah. We kept it at the movies, and that was about it. <laughs> 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 Sorry to let you all down there. We are not a hundred percent deep on everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. You see that name, that would name Ben something or other. It's usually like son of, son of somebody. So that's like calling somebody like uh, Matt Junior. I don't. I can't imagine calling somebody Matt Junior. That'd be terrible. Naming yeah. a kid after kid. Naming a kid after me. I just uh, no. Uh, anyway, so we get we get Solomon's administration, and then we get some some look into the prosperity and wisdom of Solom- Solomon's reign, or at least that's the title of the next section there in chapter four, on in my Bible, yeah. and we find that the governors have uh, really lined up behind David. Mm. The governors have really lined up behind Solomon. I get so used to saying David; it was like King David forever, and now it's King Solomon. But they they start providing for for Solomon, and each governor takes one month out of the year. So this is this is be um, a governor of each tribe. They'll take a month out of the year, and they provide. Sounds like all the food for for Solomon's household. It's got to be for his household. Oh yeah, it's everybody. It's the because, whole force. Yeah, because there is so 
much that was provided. I mean, we're talking. I There's mean, a lot of bends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, each one of these is providing an immense amount of, of food and support every month for, for Solomon and his household and everybody he's taking care of. So I, let's, let's just hit that for just a second. Mm-hmm. Is that there were a lot of people in first uh, Kings four twenty, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate, drank and were happy. There's actually a lot going on there. They ate, drank and were happy is like, this is a time of peace that hasn't existed for a really long time. But the part before that, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. So let's rewind to Genesis 22, 17. And this is God talking to Abraham. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. Now, God says this when Abraham doesn't even, he's got one kid. And I'm sure at that time, it's like, well, how's that going to happen? Like, that's just, this doesn't even seem possible. And that's how God rolls. He'll make a promise. And like, how can that happen? Just because we can't understand it and we can't see it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Because here we are. We're in 1 Kings 4.20 and Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. Mm -hmm. Like, it happened. This thing happened. Also, the other part of the promise back in Genesis 22 it says, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. That's a prophecy of the Messiah. And I'm sure they're like, well, how's that going to happen? And, and then we see it happen later. I just think it's a really cool thing, and we need to make note that we're kind of on a journey as we read through the Bible here, and as we are going through time. And it may seem impossible, some of these things that God says, now this is going to happen. But then it does happen. And we should we should stop being surprised. Yeah, and it also says, we give an idea of how vast his empire, empire, well, sure, empire, yeah, I guess. It is. It says he, it, he reigned from the river as far as the border of Egypt. So by river, I take that to be the Jordan. I think it's Euphrates. Euphrates. Yep. Okay. Okay. So it's and the Euphrates is close to a thousand miles away, is my recollection. Yeah, but yeah, all the way, all the way to Egypt, and then over into, um, yeah, this area of Israel, and we know that that actually extended across the Jordan. Then, so uh, yeah, it's gotten to be a very big area that he has power over. Big enough that he didn't he divide it into twelve sort of states with governors over them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're given a little bit of insight into his military power here, which is interesting because at this point we haven't really heard about any any um, any fighting that he's had to do. But uh, we've talked before about how chariots were really kind of the they were like the apex of of military technology of the time. Yeah. We're told that he had. Let's see. This is in uh, yeah in First Kings because there's the, the the numbers were slightly different I think between First Kings and Chronicles. Uh, or maybe I was reading it wrong. But anyway, uh, 40,000 stalls of horses, 12,000 horsemen, 1,400 uh, 1, chariots. That came from Second uh, Chronicles chapter 1. 
And in all of this, it sounds like he created sort of an import-export business of Egyptian horses and mm-hmm. chariots to the Hittites and the Syrians. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like he would buy these things cheap from the Egyptians and then and then make a profit selling them to Hittites and Syrians. So he's got a lot going on. Yeah, he and, does. You know, I mean, I think this is just more of that wisdom because you 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 got to be a pretty smart guy. You got to you got to have you're going to have to have a lot of wisdom to know how to run this much and and keep things keep track of things and you know creating businesses and running militaries and uh, it's just, it's just it's just fascinating how how everything has grown. Like you were just talking, Eric, where Abraham's you know we were talking about Abraham from one child to now this this amazing military and political force right there in the middle of, of everything. Yeah. Now they were supposed to be, and let's, let's to, to rewind this is that there was supposed to be a purpose to this, not just a, uh, not just a, um, Hey, we did good and we're successful and so on. And I think there's a lesson in that for us too, is that there should be a purpose in our Success. Let me let me flip back here. It's in Deuteronomy four. Deuteronomy four, by the way, you guys hear me talk about it all the time. It's an amazing chapter, and and God is Moses is is talking to the children of Israel, sharing God's uh, commandments. And he says, you know, see, I have taught you. This is in Deuteronomy four five. I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. So now they're there. Keep them and do them. That will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law I have set before you today? The purpose was to be an attractive is beacon of light. They were to be basically a lighthouse among all the nations and they were to be successful. And these were basically these rules and guidelines were to be their guardrails, not their salvation. And they were to be so successful that nations would come from all over and say, wow, like how is it that you're doing so awesome? And we see this happening in the time of Solomon. Like this is the time when this unfolds. And that's to be the purpose. That's the goal. And at least initially, these things happen, and they are a witness to, to the nations and so on. And this Solomon's prosperity is noticed by everybody. And we see that the temple is also to be a witness. And, I mean, he, he builds it, and we can get into that here in just a second. And he, he starts building this amazing thing that should be, and for a while is, a witness. We see it later become something that's just a center of pride, but it starts out as something that's that's a that's a witness. It has a purpose greater than itself. The chapter uh, verse twenty nine was interesting too. Where you pointed out the people were by the sand on the seashore. Well, it tells us that God gave Solomon wisdom like the sand on the seashore. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was an interesting little comparison on that. Mm-hmm. Well, we get into First Kings chapter five, and now Solomon is preparing to build the temple. 
He's got some letters going back and forth between him and Hiram of Tyre. And they create a trade agreement. Hiram and Tyre is going to send logs and, you know, lumber to build, to build the temple. And Solomon is going to send food to Tyre. He's going to send wheat, barley, oil, and wine. So they have this, they've, they've created this, uh, this trade agreement through some letters that are that are spelled out there for us. So that's that kind of an interesting little bit of of history to be spelled out. I was curious about that, and I did a little digging around about Tyre, and some of the stuff I read said that they struggled to produce enough like food produce for themselves. Interesting. So this was a really really good trade for them. Like they had the cedars, like they had trees, mm-hmm. but they didn't have croplands and farmers and enough land because it's an island isn't it isn't it an island you know i should have looked into that i don't know well the so, city higher is yeah anyway so they so they that's what i read was that they struggled to produce enough like day-to-day produce to meet their own needs so that this this was just a brilliant negotiation for them to get what they needed for an indefinite period of time huh you would think being able to grow trees of course maybe they just didn't have the land but you would think that being able to grow trees, you'd be able to grow produce. But I suppose maybe as they cleared uh, forests, maybe then. I think they would be replanting forests. Like if timber well, if is there. If that's their export, yeah. 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 I don't know. Mm. And I know yeah. like Japan, for example. My brother lived in Japan for several years. And the government has a contract with individual homeowners that have these little 10 by 10 and 10 by 12 foot backyards. The government has a contract with them to raise rice in their backyards and sell it, guaranteed that they'll sell it to the government so that the government can provide food to the people. Like there's interesting ways that different governments handle their shortcomings. Mm. Anyway, I, I just yeah. thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I found it kind of interesting that we get this little uh, get it laid down in these in these letters back and forth it was kind of cool to see that correspondence between mm-hmm. uh the two kings we're you know very specifically where in the past we, you know things get alluded to but here we got an actual we got to see some of the actual back and forth on that yeah one thing that's that we could miss that i want to just point out is that solomon doesn't feel the need he's securing himself enough that he doesn't feel the need to like oh yeah my father had friends well, I'm the boss of everything, and I'm not going to follow up with anybody who was before blah, blah, blah. And we see the wisdom of Solomon not breaking these tight connections that his father has had. He's got a knack for diplomacy. We see Solomon's own son not do that. We saw, remember when David sent a, a set of emissaries to, oh man, I can't remember the king's name, whose father had died and David was friends with the father. And the son was like, oh, yeah, you think, yeah, well, you were friends with my dad, but I'm not my dad and I'm tough. And it, it went it went poorly. But we see Solomon with a, a level of diplomacy here that actually is helpful. Mm-hmm. Hand up. Yeah, I, I thought it was I thought it was interesting because like through the the line of work that I've been in for years, I've seen a lot of contracts and like this agreement between the two kings is so undefined by modern standards. Hmm. It's like, well, yeah, I'll provide you all the wood you need. Um, 
you know, and I'll provide you these workmen and it'll be good. And then you send me a bunch of food. And like in a modern contract, it would be like, I will send you a minimum of this much wood or a maximum of that much wood as far as pounds or boards extracted or circumference of trees. You know what I mean? Like it would be very, nowadays it would be very rigid and structured and in return for this and then here are the here here is what will happen if either of us violates and then every year on the anniversary of signing we will review and if everybody's happy we'll agree to extend this contract for another year and these guys are like there's a lot of good faith here is what i noticed there's a mm -hmm. lot of good faith it's just like yeah i've got some stuff that you need and you've got some stuff that i need and we had this previous good relationship between our nations and between our our royalty and so we're just going to do this and it's like i don't know it's kind of it's kind of cool and yet there you know the peril my internal paralegal is like oh did you oh did you remember to okay all right it's fine <laughs> you know i think it just looks at they're just doing it for what what they feel is best for their their country or their mm -hmm. people yeah they don't care about the the small little nuances of like contracts and how long is it going to take us to build the temple how long are we going to need the wood for they just are doing it. You know what? This is the here and now, and this is what we're doing. And you know what? When we get done, then we'll worry about what's next. Mm -hmm. That is a terrible way to write contracts. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other part of it that's interesting to me, too, is, I mean, when we get in, we'll get into some of the details of, of building the temple. And when we see how, how big it was, to me, it doesn't seem like it required that much wood to be able to you know start supplying food to another country but i mean i'm sure this isn't the only export that tire has you know i'm sure that i'm sure that solemn isn't isn't their only customer but um it, it is it, also, really... it was also more than the wood like it was the craftsmen yeah and the laborers yeah. you know there, were, there was other stuff too yeah you know and i'm also wondering too if it was maybe like a little bit in egypt where you know this was a huge project where you, they had you know thousands upon thousands of people doing this kind of stuff did they build like outside like communities for to house all these people and some of that could have been used for that mm. you know when you think about like roof structures and i want to say when it was being destroyed that they were saying that there was like um the insides of the rooms could have been like lined with wood like what we would think of like drywall and stuff maybe that was the kind of wood that was in yeah. there the roofs and the you know that kind of thing so Mm -hmm. It's hard. You only can let your imagination run wild when um, when you were sending over those videos this week for all of us to kind of look at, because that's what we do. We kind of go back and forth all week and of stuff that we we find, you know, was it the way I imagined it? I'm, maybe not. But, you know, I think it just leaves something to the imagination that we'll never know. You know, we only get bits and pieces, you know, to kind of let our imaginations run wild. Mm hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about all the support required to build the temple. Because anytime you have a big project like that, you'll always see you'll always see all the stuff around it. You know, now on a construction site, depending. I mean, if you're building a, somebody's building like a whole neighborhood, you're you're going to see trailers brought in. You're going to see all this infrastructure put in place before you even start. I mean, I'm just thinking. Yeah, anytime you have a big construction, it's not just it's not just the building itself that has to get set up. It's all kinds of things around it that have to get set up too. So yeah, scaffolding. That, I mean, this thing this mm -hmm. thing was forty five feet high. Yeah. So yeah, 
just getting up onto it to build it securely, the framework to hold it in place until its structure will, so until its structure is supported within itself. Like, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah. So yeah, yeah there's a, fascinating. Yeah. So there's a lot going on with it. So to that point, um, skipping ahead to six, if we can, just a little bit. Sure. Uh, there's a very interesting thing that's different about this building than other buildings that probably made it just a little more complicated and a bit more precise. It's First Kings 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 7. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They pre-measured and pre-fit and pre-cut everything so there were no hammers used on iron. Or at least there was no iron tool used. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe there was wooden mallets. I don't know. But basically, this thing was so tight. It takes a different level of craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And they're doing this without computers. I mean, these days, you know, you hear about like airplanes getting built and pieces will get built all over the country and then they'll bring them together and everything fits together. But that's because they've started with like a computer program that has very specifically and precisely measured things or like, um, cruise ships. I remember seeing one of the Disney cruise line cruise ships. Half of it was built in at one shipyard and the other half was built at the other shipyard. And then they sailed one over to the other and they put them together and made them fit, you know, but, the, we're talking here about guys who, you know, they're probably counting with, I don't know, abacuses and, 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 and uh, you know, they got, they're probably got a, a, a charred piece of, of uh, wood to use as a pencil on a piece of papyrus or something, you know, and they're, they're, they're figuring, figuring all this stuff out basically in their heads and using hand tools in a quarry that, I mean, the quarry was in Lebanon. Yeah, you know, so I mean, and then they're then they're transporting these these stones and all these thing, all these pieces up well, to I this. Assume, I assume they would number them. You know, I assume that they oh, would probably. they would number them. Oh, yeah. But I just I liked the holiness that it kind of implied. Yes. Like we're not here to make a racket. We're like even when we're building, we're going to be reverent. Like this yeah. is God's house. I thought that was really neat. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, that sets the tone for. It's not just another building. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, we're, we're given you know, some... Go ahead, I, Tracy. I think, too, that what we're... Sometimes we overlook is that they were very intelligent at that point. Yeah. The stuff that we're looking at now wasn't, wasn't totally out of the norm because the Egyptians had done it. Yeah. You know, that they had quarries all over, you know, um, Africa, basically, in different regions in Egypt where they were able to sail um, bits and pieces or float them down rivers and do those kind of fittings and that kind of stuff. Now, I think, but what it shows is that, that God took it to another level mm-hmm. to do it quietly. Now, nowhere in the stuff that we went through with Egypt and building the pyramids and all their great structures, does it say it did it, they did it quietly. Right. You know, I think it's just raising it up to that level, but we see some of this technology, if you want to call it that, but early on, we've seen it in other places, but I think it's just, is a testament to say that, you know what, Solomon was a wise person, the wisest ever in the world, and that, you know what, 
why not build on some of the other things that were going on, you know, or that had been used in, you know, in Egypt and that kind of thing to to do this kind of fittings and um, bringing in all the resources from different places and incorporating that in this massive building project. I got a little sidetracked on um, on how they did the gold overlay. Because it was like, you know, it would say, well, and it was these measurements, and then it was like this, and then they covered everything with gold. And if you, and well, in Kings, it says they covered everything with gold. In Chronicles, it says they hammered gold onto this, that, and the other. So yeah. I was like, well, what does that look like? So I I looked up, like, what does that mean to make gold sheeting? Because to me, to me, if you're, if you're, if it's gold sheeting, it's, it's, because otherwise there's, you would you wouldn't have to hammer it on like you put it on with a paintbrush or something like that but how how did they do that part did they take the boards over here like how did they work in silence you know did mm. they take the boards over here pound the gold onto them and then go build with them already covered with gold i don't know i just i get so curious about stuff like that okay but to to, to this to, to karen's point here and to what we're talking about here is this is relevant this temple eventually gets destroyed. Spoiler alert, all the things that God warns them about, don't do this and don't do that and all the other. And, and he gives a kind of some foreshadowing here in uh, 1 Kings 6 um, and Solomon's prayer of dedication, which we get to later, which is really pretty awesome. Uh, 1 Kings 6, um, 12, concerning this house that you are building, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then... I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people, Israel. Well, Israel doesn't. Okay, They just don't. And eventually there is the Babylonian captivity. This um, temple is destroyed. Solomon's temple is destroyed. And the people of Israel are brokenhearted. Nehemiah and Ezra uh, are back at the time that the, that the new temple is built. And the new temple, even though it's pretty amazing, when the people who had, there's this really interesting line, is that the people who had were young enough in Israel had seen Solomon's temple, went to Babylon, and then came back and saw the new temple they had built, which was a really beautiful thing, they cried. Yep. They cried because the new one wasn't anything as awesome as the first one. And so this was an amazing thing. And to me, though, this was the thing that came up to me. We're reading all this amazing stuff. We've got okay, the the the, tent, the courtyard and the uh, and the giant bronze laver, you know, that's on the back of these. This is really important. Is that this temple is not built as an exact model. Some of the 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 main pieces are represented here as they were in the tabernacle in the desert with Moses, but they are not the same. There's a lot of differences. We've got the holy place. We've got the most holy place. We've got these gigantic cherubim. I mean, their wingspan is from we got we got cherubim over cherubim because we've got cherubim who are on the who are on the mercy seat. We've read about that and how that was built uh, on the on the ark itself. But then we have cherubim over these cherubim, and they're huge, really big. Who would have seen this stuff? Like I wonder about that because it was supposed to be only priests. And only the yeah. high priest could go into the most holy. Yeah. Like besides the people who built this, who who would ever have seen the inside of this? And it's it's to me, it's almost like 
uh, this is a this is a, is a weird, a weak comparison, but it's like mountains. It's like beautiful, beautiful, beautiful mountain scenery or flowers that bloom in the mountains that nobody sees. It's mm-hmm. there, anyways. It's like beauty in the deep sea. It's there, and nobody sees it, but it's still there. You know, that's what I kind of wondered too. Is that we always mention, you know, the wonders of the world. Why didn't this one come up? It is interesting because this, you know, I'm going to share when, when this posts. I'm going to share some videos that we were that we were sending back and forth this week. You know, one of them gives us an idea of the size. Uh, one of them gives us an idea of what this thing actually looked like. Uh, Karen shared a video of how to actually hammer out a sheet of gold. And uh, this was a feat. I mean, this was something really amazing when you when you start to grasp how amazing this this building was and yeah how is this not one of the seven wonders or the eighth wonder you know um i i would guess because i don't know that it was such an archaeological feat or an or architectural feat i don't know that it was anything like that i just think i think the thing that made this wonderful is that it was just stunningly beautiful so, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would just I would just say that like mo- when I think of what's the what is on the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is where this would fall. They're sort of they're incredible. They're incredible feats of architecture. Like how on earth did they get that to do that? And really, there's nothing architecturally complex about this. It's just so over the top luxurious and gorgeous it's just awe-inspiring in that way hmm. i don't know but we should just say that those <clears throat> those things come and go you know those, yeah. there's the, there's this and that and the other and according to this person but it just it made me wonder who saw it because yeah, yeah. The, that was my thing ancient temples anybody could go around these things and do these things and see them and if you were willing to give a sacrifice i'm sure you could just go in but this one was limited. I mean, Israelite temples were limited to certain people and then certain people within those people. And they were priests and they were priests who were on duty. And then anyways, I just think it's fascinating that there was all this beauty done to honor God that wasn't necessarily for a show for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's well, yeah. kind of where I left it off is that, you know what, it was just it was not accessible to everyone. Yeah. Well, it's something you said there, Eric. This is this was built for God. So many, like, I mean, you know, Karen sent us pictures of a church she went to. Um, what in just in the last couple of days? Was it yesterday? Yeah, yeah it was and Basilica yesterday. Yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous building, but um, anybody can see it. Everybody can see it. So in so, in some ways, that was kind of more built for the people to see it. In this case, though, with the with the temple. This was very specifically, I think, more built for God because there just weren't that many people that that would see it. You know, there was there was no grand, there's no grand uh, national um, pride really to be taken from this, other than to say, okay, we have this over here, but nobody gets to look at it. You know, <laughs> so um, this isn't this isn't for the other nations to see it. This isn't for even the people of Israel to see it. This is specifically for God. This is done for God. Yep. And it is an I mean the riches the 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 value monetary value going into this and the work going into this 
are astounding. And this is all just for God. Fascinating. And and I I thought I thought the fact uh, in you know your comment Eric about well who was this who who would see this to me this was right up there with the holiness of working in silence the reverence of working in silence we're creating this beauty and yes we're going to be blown away by it but ultimately we're doing this out of reverence for God this is for God for us to show how we value Him so you know it was the the height of what humans inspired by god-given talents could create as far as beauty went and it was it was just for god well we're given some i'll see if i can give some of the details that went into this you know the dimensions of the of the sanctuary and i don't this doesn't even count the outer courtyard i don't think no this is just uh, basically the basic building the dimensions it's uh says 60 cubits long so i worked that out to be 90 feet about 90 feet long its width is 20 cubits wide which is about 30 feet and its height is 45 feet we've talked about how all this was it was built from stone finished at the quarry in lebanon uh the interior is completely paneled with beams and boards of cedar the most holy place inside 20 cubits by 20 cubits so that would be 30 that'd be a big room 30 by 30 feet built with cedar boards uh the entire inside of the temple sanctuary is covered with wood there's no stone seen inside yeah so all of it's built with stone they cover it with wood and then everything and i mean everything in this place is overlaid with gold and Karen, you made an interesting point earlier of, you know, would this have been gold leaf or gold paneling? But it seems like what you were talking about before. No, we're talking about gold paneling because gold leaf. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, gold leaf is a bit of a complicated process in itself. But that just doesn't seem that doesn't you sound like what they did here. Yeah, you in in Chronicles it specifically says that the gold was hammered on. Gold mm-hmm. leaf gets painted on. Like it's that thin. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a goldsmith, but there's so many carvings on the walls. And so somehow we see the carvings through the gold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How this was done. Yeah, I don't know their, their skill and craftsmanship. We tend to sell short now because like, oh, I got an iPhone. They didn't have that. It's like, yeah, but they they were they were putting together pyramids that you can't slip a piece of paper through that aligned with the stars and all kinds of stuff that we're still trying to figure out and reverse engineer. So they were pretty sharp people. It was big. I mean, one of the things that, that uh, was mentioned, Matt just said that the most holy place was uh, roughly 30 by 30 feet. There were cherubim on the, of the, of the lid of the Ark of the covenant, the mercy seat there, but they were cherubim over that that were 30 feet in span where their yeah. wings touched in the middle, but they also touched the outside edge of the walls. So this must've been just, just mind blowingly amazing in so many ways, but it was built for God. It was built to honor God. And in second, we'll, we'll get to second Chronicles here in just a little bit. And we'll, because we talk a little bit more about kind of the religious significance of it here, we're talking about the architecture and furniture, but Chronicles talks about some other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those cherubim on inside the sanctuary, they were 15 feet tall. They each had a wingspan of 15 feet. And like Eric said, one wing would touch 
the wall and then one wing would touch the wing of the other. And so you have these these creatures and we've talked before about what is a cherub and what does it look like? These aren't the little baby cupids, you know, um, with the we, little bow and bow and arrow ready yeah, to make you yeah. fall. Oh no, no. See, we've gotten this concept of in our mind in um, what I'll call popular Christianity of what an, uh, you know, we've got angels. We, we, and we've, I think people have tended to think of a cherubim as being like this humanoid creature with wings that may not be the case because we're never really given that specific uh, uh, description. They have wings. We know that. We do know they had wings. We know that the cherubim had two wings. There's another place in the Bible where there's another kind of angel called uh, seraphim. And see, I'm calling them angels. I don't know if those are specifically spelled out as being angels, but we have cherubim with two wings. We've got seraphim with six wings. I think so. Mm Mm-hmm. All we know is they are some kind of winged creature. There's absolutely no reason that we would need to believe that these are humanoid creatures. Um, in fact, hmm, a few weeks ago, Eric, you were mentioning, we were, oh, well, it was in the Bible. But we were talking about some imagery in the Bible about God riding on a seraphim, on the back Cher- of a seraphim. Cher- Cherubim, thank you. Yeah. Um, we and don't know what this- that is, but he, he rides it like it's a, like it's some kind of, either attack vehicle or chariot or we don't know it's just kind of like how much of that is metaphor and how much of that is real and did they build these as symbolic or were the cherubim did they actually had they seen one we see no evidence that they've ever seen one right it's just it's fascinating there's a lot of stuff we don't know but Mm -hmm. it was amazing yeah and in the video i'll share they kind of depict them looking sort of sphinx like very Very animal, a lot of animal, um, you know, like an animal body. And then they show them with like a human head and they almost look kind of Egyptian in the video. And we had, we, we, we were talking about some discrepancy with that, but, uh, Karen. If anyone wants to read that text for themselves, it's Psalm 1810, where it talks about him riding a cherubim. Okay. But yeah, so anyway, you have these cherubim in this most holy place. Yeah. So so anyway, this place is just it's amazing to look at. Now, as we move into the Chronicles and the Chronicles has some more descriptions and such and what 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 Solomon has done. And we talk about the part that I that I pulled out of that in first uh, second Chronicles chapter. Well, Eric, you know, what? where do you want to go with that? I was just going to say we've um, there's a kind of a parallel reading here. We've been in. um We've been in First Kings three to six. Now we're going to go over to Second Chronicles one to three, and this is one of those cases where it's a lot of parallel. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to parse the whole thing over, but um, it's it's a lot of parallel reading. It, we have Solomon praying for wisdom. Solomon worships at Gibeon again. There's kind of a little just a, a passing phrase here in Second Chronicles one. 14 where, or 15 where it says, and the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone. Mm-hmm. And then yada, yada, yada. It's just like, wow. Like, yeah, well, he would have had to to have this kind of gold to put all over this temple like that. There is, yeah, we get more of the letters from Tyre and Solomon. They're different letters than what we got in Kings. Um, and this back and forth of this respect between the two of them. Yeah, and in that, as, as Solomon's preparing the temple, there's a really important um, 
line that shows up here in Second Chronicles 2, 6. It's an outline. Um, you know, so, so this is Solomon talking about this. But who is able to build him, that is God, a house? Since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him. <laughs> who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? So he's, he's trying to make this clear that this isn't where God lives, which is a very different view than a lot of the other um, religions of the day, because they believed that like Dagon like lived there in the, in the temple, or that this other God lived in the temple. And so you're, they're building a, God, a, a house for God. And Solomon's like, no, 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 this isn't God's house. Heaven can't even contain him. This is just a place where we come and say, hey, this is a place, where should we meet? Oh, let's meet at the temple so that we can all get together at this one place and offer sacrifices to this God that is so big, the heavens can't contain him. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, indication, too, in this that um, that it's going to take a lot of quality of work and... And I I looked at the prep time and the preparation and and that this was... um, had been continued to be a work in progress, a, a labor of love, maybe because if you look in, in was it seven at the end of seven, and it said that you know we have the gold and skillful workers with gold and silver, but at the end it says, "Whom David my father provided." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, even though David was, and like we had talked about before a few weeks ago, even though he knows that he could not build it, he tried to prepare and and um, get ready for all aspects of this uh, building. Mm-hmm. Verse 11 kind of stands out to me here, and this is Hiram in his letter back to, to Solomon. He says, because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. How about a, boy, that's a little shot in the arm for Solomon, huh? I mean, uh, 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 another national leader who who lifts you up because he thinks that, 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 that God has put you in place because, because he loves the people. I mean, that's uh that's quite the compliment, I think. Yeah. So the location, we haven't really talked about the oh, location. Yeah. We need to get into that. Um, that's, that's, I think it's chapter three. Yeah. Second uh, uh, Chronicles chapter three. Now Solomon began to, let's see, was this first one? Yeah. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Yeah, Eric, you made some allusion to this in the past about that. In fact, I was just re-listening to that episode the other day, and um, that is that's really a fascinating uh, thing going on there. Yes, yeah, so that's the, the, well. There's two things, and I had kind of forgotten about the second one. This is, in fact, the, the threshing floor of Ornan, where the plague over Israel stopped, and so there was um, uh, the significance there. Let me read another one. Flashback, Genesis 22. I'll start at the beginning. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and He said, "Here am I." He said, "Take your son Isaac." whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. This is that mountain. Eric, you're blowing my mind. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That, 
That is so fascinating to me. I mean, not just, I totally missed that. That is so fascinating to me that God, that this has been in place for so long. And these, these people are going to, they're going to know this stuff. Yep. And they're going to recognize that this is where these things happened. This is is their national, this is their national identity. Yep. Mm -hmm. This idea of sacrifice and let's let can't we can't forget this. This is this is a um, this is a picture of Christ. This was always intended to be a picture of Christ. This isn't just an Old Testament sacrifices. Blah blah blah. Abraham was given one son, and he is to sacrifice that one son. He doesn't. God says this was a test. He explicitly says it was a test. And what happens when Abraham does not offer his son as a sacrifice? Isaac asks, "Well, where will we find an appropriate lamb?" Abraham prophesies and says, God will provide a lamb. Yeah. This is symbolic, and it was sometimes got lost on the people there, and it gets lost on us. This is about Jesus. Yeah. Solomon's temple is actually about Jesus. The location goes all the way back to Abraham offering Isaac, which is a picture of what we find as soon as they leave the Garden of Eden. There is a sacrifice made. Um, and this points to a, an ultimate sacrifice that is done for us. This isn't a thing where we do this. It's not an exchange because, like, I can go to, to a grocery store and say, you know, here's $3. Give me a dozen of eggs. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a trade, right? My money for your eggs or whatever it is. Um, it's not a trade where we say, okay, I offer this sacrifice, uh, a lamb or whatever, and then you give me salvation. It is a symbol of grace, the blood of which we can't pay that price. And so it's a symbol of Christ's blood that buys us salvation that we can't pay. We can't pay for it with animal blood. We can't pay for it with our own blood. We can't have our cake and eat it too, right? We could sacrifice. Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, I'll pay for my own sins. Like, well, okay, but you won't exist when you're done. <laughs> yeah. That's just, it, it's, and so this all is to be symbolic of Christ and his grace paying a price we can't pay. Yeah, It was lost on some then and it's lost on some now but let's not lose sight of it i'm remembering the well there's the the communion supper right where jesus uh you know says to the disciples this is a new thing that i'm having you do and you know this bread represents my body which will be broken you know he's about to become that sacrifice that's about to happen and the sacrificial system is going to go away. So now the symbolism, instead of going forward to what will happen for grace and salvation and forgiveness, now it's going to look backwards to what did happen. So he says, you know, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. But then he also steps into this servant role where he goes around the room and he goes to wash the disciples' feet. Like he is here to serve. He kneels down and he goes to wash Peter's feet. And Peter says, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. And he says, well, I don't have to wash your feet, but if I don't, you have no part of me. Right. You know? mm-hmm. And it's like, we, we, this is, this is a rather odd and it goes against our human nature and it goes against our human intuition of what's fair. 
we want it to be a trade. We want to, we want to, you know, there are, there are a great number of things in human religion that become a trade. Like you go and you earn forgiveness by saying this many prayers or whatever, or you give an offering because you feel guilty. And now you somehow in your head, you've balanced the scales of justice. You might've done this thing wrong, but then you gave a big offering. And there's different ways that this happens. But the simple fact is, like that role at the Last Supper where Jesus steps into the role of a servant and he says to Peter, you have to let me serve you. If you don't, you have no part of me. You know, like that is very counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. And it goes straight to grace. Like there's nothing deserving or earned. It is a gift. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of important here to point out all of these sacrifices in this temple and all of these things, all of these things were pointing forward to Jesus. It's not it's not like the sacrifice of a lamb ever actually paid for someone's sins. Right. This was all only intended as a symbol. It was intended as sort of a placeholder. Um, I think maybe we talked about it before where it was almost like uh, almost like putting something on credit. Yep. You know, yep. where, okay, I'm going to you know, for whatever sin it was that I committed, I'm going to bring a lamb. Well, you know, I am not of the opinion that the life of the lamb is equal to the life of a human being. If you have uh, two of them hanging on the edge of a cliff, I'm going to save the human being every time. You know, yeah. um, so so that 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 life of that lamb never once actually equaled the value of the human being never ever did it ever no it's an undeserving innocence is what Mm -hmm. it is like Mm -hmm. my conscious choice that led into my sin gets laid on an innocent undeserving flawless creature it's the it's actually the unfairness of it that makes it impactful at least that's always thought of it yeah but all the same that 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 animal's death never actually paid for anything correct it was always just a point forward it was always symbolic of something, something else. It was sort of something that people could could grasp. Uh, you know, they could get. It was as a, a tangible way for them to see, uh, see the cost, see that that sin has a cost. Mm-hmm. But all of this, all of this grandeur of this temple, all of these sacrifices that would be, that would be made there, it's all pointing forward to Jesus, and none of it ever. I mean, none of it. Not. I don't care how many. How many lambs, how many different animals got sacrificed? None of it equaled up to what what Jesus did for us, what right. what that actually costs. You could never, I don't know how you could ever put a value on the life of God. I mean. And that's, and that's the struggle is that we have and that they have. See, we've been talking about the amazing architecture and like it was gold plated and it was cedar and it was carved and it was like, um, it was all these amazing things. And we I, it was probably more amazing than our most vivid imagination could make it. And then for for people to realize that the God that this was this this couldn't even contain the God, <clears throat> just a place to make sacrifices to him, would be a servant. It just creates some cognitive dissonance. Like, wait yeah. a minute, what? How is the God that this is so big that can't this can't even symbolize? You, this is just a place where we meet. He doesn't even live here. He's too big for this. And all this gold 
he is here to serve me. How you, I can't make those two things balance in my brain. Mm-mm. Right. Mm-mm. Well, no, the idea at all of a God of a God that bows down. Yeah. Well, bows down. I mean, to serve, to serve us, to, to, and it's not like he's doing our will that, I mean, saying that he's serving us to right. some that might sound like this is God, you know, doing what we want, right. but, um, but he, he's, all of this is just showing his care and love for us. I mean, this whole, this whole temple, you know, a place to, like you say, a place to meet, but all of this is for, it's for our benefit really more than his, he doesn't need any of this. Right. And, and it's this as grandeur, as grand as it is, it's uh, it's a pittance of, of towards to, to God, you know, but like that Basilica that I was standing in yesterday, you know, mm-hmm. that was nowhere near, nothing was gold plated. You know, the paint was rose colored. You know what I mean? It was just, even that, and it, it didn't even begin to compare to Solomon's temple. It was awe-inspiring. Like, you wanted to whisper. So, it, God might be in front of us kneeling down and offering to serve us, but at the same time, like, he's the reason we draw breath. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to be said for an awe-inspiring worship atmosphere where, yeah. where you, you're literally stunned into silence and you're reminded how small and unimportant you are yeah. and how little you actually have to offer. And yeah. those are important moments. So, so I, I appreciate the, the awe generated by the temple. I appreciate, you know, digging into the details of it and thinking about the seven years of work that it took to put this together and how much time and money and labor and everything else went into it because because they did it with reverence, because they did it with God-given skill, you know, it kind of makes the whole thing come together. I think I just think I just thought this was a beautiful reading. I thought it was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, that whole concept of it was a labor of love. Mm-hmm. You know, for a nation to God. And I think that's exactly what we're trying to put in into perspective here is that as grand as it was, the, the meaning was the relationship between uh, God and his people. Yeah, it is quite the thing. Well, I think that will about wrap it up for us this week. We will continue next week in first Kings. I'm going to say, we're going to try to do first Kings chapters seven through nine. And Second Chronicles four through eight. That is going to take us into some of the other buildings Solomon built. It's going to take us into ah the ark being brought into the temple, nice. uh, the dedication of the temple. Ah, and then God appears to Solomon in all of this. So it's good. I think it's going to be some interesting, uh, some some interesting discussion for next week. In the meantime, remember that you can reach us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. You can find us on Facebook. I'm going to put those uh, I'm going to put those videos on Facebook for for this uh, episode. Make sure you share the podcast with your friends and family and neighbors, and be sure that you subscribe to us so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.